Welcome to the Don't Experience today's episode 52, and I've got a special guest for you. But before we get to that, make sure you like, subscribe, follow, do whatever you need to do to keep in touch with the podcast so you can hear it again. My next guest is the author and creator of The Unicorn in You, a personal development perspective uh, that emphasizes five key, five key principles as the foundation for peace and joy. He's also a managing partner of Kramer Chandler, a founding partner of Real Connects, and an active member of the Young, Young President's Organization in New York City. My guest today is Josh Kramer. Josh, how are you? How are you, Dylan? Great to be with you. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So, Josh, I'm, I'm, curious, uh, I'm curious about the unicorn in you. Obviously, that's, that's very relevant to, to what I do and the work that I do. And so I'm, I'm, tell me a little bit, one, about the book itself and, and obviously the perspective, but tell me where it came from. So if you want to go back and tell your story, you do whatever you got to do, but, but kind of right. help me understand where this came from and what it is. It's interesting because I've been speaking a lot about the book, which came out now several weeks ago. The reception has been very positive because I think it's resonated on a very simplistic level. It's a back to basics approach. And I share that the book, while started maybe two years ago, it really began probably 25 years ago. And I probably in my late teens started suffering and struggling with my mental health, really some sadness and depression that deepened and got more severe over probably the, the following 15, 12, 16 years. I read a lot of self-help books during that time, like everyone. And now I guess they're more in the personal growth and development space. But I read a lot of these books and they gave me some temporary relief. And it's something that I think that I never really knew what questions to ask, but it was something that whether there was a methodology or a little piece of, of information, a nugget, something that can give me some comfort my sadness and depression peaked probably in my late 30s, um, and it got to the point where anyone who's been through it knows that it's overpowering, it's scary, and it's debilitating. And I would look for these books as sort of a lifeline. And fortunately, I was able to turn the corner slowly. And it was really then a handful of years later, and it was probably um, just before the onset of COVID, where I had a couple of interesting experiences. One was a conversation with Ryan Holiday. And a few months later, COVID began. And I started to look to some of these books and I couldn't recall any of them naturally. I couldn't think to any of these mechanisms that would maybe just relieve some of the anxiety and the worry that we were all feeling. It was a confusing time, amazing to think now, two years ago. And so I thought about what would be an unself-help approach. And that was the genesis for the unicorn in you saying, if there's a foundation of values, a sense of, you know, I wanted to feel light, but to feel light, I first had to be solid. And that's what really began the process of writing it. I, I, I love, I love where it ended there because it's a lot of my work with, with people specifically kind of focuses around what you just kind of said of, of this, this prescription of intrinsic values for yourself, right? Right. Um, and, and I kind of, I did a little bit of research on your book and I, you know, obviously you confirm this, but I imagine that your, your five values that you're going to focus on are kindness, gratitude, integrity, humility, and acceptance. And I, I find that really interesting that, you know, we've, we've both kind of come to the same conclusion through different paths in life. I, I you know, I continuously find that. And I think that's what is most amazing about this podcast and about what I do here. Um, 
is that these these intrinsic values that we develop through our lives or don't develop are often what kind of determines where we go. Right. You know, if you if you have a lack of value, um, where you where you don't necessarily know how to actually define what it is that you are trying to be like within. Um, and, I, and I'm going to take a guess because I've never read your book, but I'm going to take a guess that those five values, you spent a lot of time in the book defining what they actually mean yeah. to you and how they might mean or what they might mean to others. Absolutely. And, and you're, you're so right. And, and to, to sort of extend what you're saying, I remember always being told and I had a very good friend that talked to me about this idea of how do we feel whole, you know? And how do we get a sense of who we are? And so much of, I think that defined, at least for me, was that I couldn't get out of my own head. And ruminations obviously were torturous for such a long time, but so much deeper than that. And in many ways, so much simpler than that was the idea that, okay, then what do I stand for? What do I know deep down defines me? What are my principles? What are my key foundations? What's core? What's fundamental to me? Yeah. And I felt like, all of these, and it's kindness, as you said, gratitude, humility, integrity, acceptance. The idea is that selflessness connects all of them. And I felt like that's what ultimately took me out of my head, focusing less on myself. I, and I would almost, I would almost challenge you because I, I, love, I love when we get into conversations like this of, of there's this sense of selflessness in these words. But I don't, I don't know if I like that. I don't know if I agree with that mm. because the, the selflessness is always balanced by a little bit of selfishness. Self, right? Absolutely. You know, because, because the fact that you like these words mm -hmm. is selfish. The fact that you like to do things for other people is in its, in its own sense selfish to me, right? Yeah. And that's, I don't like adding the connotation that selfishness is bad or selflessness is good, right? Mm -hmm. They're both inherently both, right? We're labeling them, correct. Exactly. And so they're just words. It's how we actually apply ourselves to those words that become values. And I love that you, you're able to recognize within those words that these are intrinsically good for, yourself, for you, mm -hmm. right? And using them is good for you, which in itself is selfish. That's good. That's remarkably good to me. Like in, in my mind, how I, how I view, you know, the, the self-help journey or the healing right. journey or whatever journey you want to call it. Yeah. I, I think it's remarkably good to be selfish enough to understand what is actually good for you. And especially, I think it's great when you find something selfless that is also selfish for you. I love that distinction though, that you make. And I think it's so true. It's a, what makes being selfish, or at least when it has perhaps some good, if we think it's good for us versus selflessness, which we inherently think is that. Kindness is the first principle I use in there. And that's a perfect example to what you're saying. Yeah. One of the cases I make for kindness is that it's one of the best things you can do for yourself. Yeah. And so in many ways, this idea of kindness being the self-serving quality that it gives us pleasure. Um, you know, there are so many medical findings that talk about how this is a good thing for you, but even if for nothing else, that it makes you feel good to do something nice for someone else, right. self-serving. Yeah. But at the same time, it's, it's got a good intention behind it. And I think when it comes more from your essence and who you are and that this is more part of your being, I think that's even better. Right. And I, I particularly like, you know, you, you talked about fundamentals and I, 
and I, I wouldn't say that like kindness, gratitude, humility, acceptance aren't fundamental, but I think integrity mm-hmm. of, of all five of those words, the, the, the one that I look at and I say, every human being has to intrinsically have that to recognize how to, how to functionally fit within the world. Um, I think you can get away with not having too much kindness or not having too much gratitude or humility or acceptance, but you have to have a sense of what is right and wrong. And that's what I think integrity yes. really means. And that's, that's a really interesting kind of deduction that you came to understanding integrity. I want to hear like, yeah. where did integrity come from for you? I fit that right in the middle there because I feel like it's so central. So you're right. The kindness and gratitude, the first two, they kind of sit on the fringe, humility and acceptance kind of on the exterior there. And right in the middle is integrity. I was at an event a handful of months ago, and it was a pretty prominent personal growth development author. And he was talking about integrity. And one of the things he kept going on with was this idea that, what is it? It's really hard to define. Let's break it down. You know, it's, it's, it's very unclear. And to me, it's the clearest thing in here. And I believe that you either have integrity or you don't. And, you know, in the book, I distill what I think are one key ingredient for each principle. So just by way of background, kindness, I think compassion is key for gratitude. I believe awareness is essential. Mm -hmm. Integrity, I think is driven by decency. And we could talk about honesty and all these other things. I was raised you know, here in Northern New Jersey, and I had a very supportive, loving family. I've been very fortunate, have, have had all the, the breaks and advantages. But one of the things that was taught to me from a very early age was your word is your bond. You shake someone's hand, it means something. You say you're going to do something, you do it. Yeah. And I think integrity doesn't need to be defined or broken down that much clearly. I think that, you know, exactly to what you're saying, living in the world without it, what's the alternative then? If none of us have integrity, chaos, it's chaos. Yeah. And so it's personal integrity, but it's also in how we live in society. And by extension, I should just add the, the other ingredients for humility, I believe is perspective and acceptance, I believe has to do with flexibility, but integrity, you're right. To me, it's almost the anchor of everything that we're talking about. Yeah. It's, it's the foundation that if you don't have a bedrock built, I mean, you, you've created a sinkhole. Right. Like right. The, it's, it's really hard to, you know, just to go to like things like humility, it's really hard to have that perspective if you don't know what right and wrong is, right? If, you, right. if you've never clearly defined that, then you will never, you never be able to look at the perspective of mm-hmm. is what he's doing right. Or am, what I am, am I doing it right? You know, you never right. have the ability to sit there and answer that question because mm-hmm. you don't know, you don't, you don't have a, a, a square to start off of, right? A foundation right. To, to step off of. Um, and I, I find that I, I find that people that that dig into integrity, right? Like you've clearly, you, to you, it's clear, right? To me, it's clear, mm-hmm. right? We both, we've both done this work where it's, we've dug into these ideas uh, or these perspectives of what is this word? What does this word mean to me? What does this value mean to me? Because it's so much more than just a word. Mm-hmm. But the people that do this work, this specific work, the work we're talking about right now, um, these are the people that really start to understand how to find peace within themselves. They don't- No question. You don't need to ruminate about a decision because you you have this fundamental structure of, okay, I know this to be right, right? Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like looking at sexual assault and saying, 
this is wrong. This is right. absolutely fundamentally wrong. And then when the perspective is revealed to you that maybe something that you held to be true was actually sexual assault, you're like, oh God, I need to change, right? I need to adapt to my version of right. And what my version of right is, is that sexual assault is wrong. So I need to change the behavior that I thought I was doing that was okay. It's not You're okay. spot on. You're spot right. on. There's, it removes all gray area. Right. And I think one of the reasons why, and you know, the subtitle of my book is a path to peace and joy. I think it's a, a possible path for people mm-hmm. and relative to integrity. I think it gives us peace because it removes so much of that gray area. In many ways, they talk about this idea of, you know, our clear conscience becomes the softest pillow. You know, yeah. it's, it's, it's the type of thing I tell, I use a lot of fables because I think that in many ways, the, the stories, they amplify the simplicity of these principles. And one of them is just a, a, a short story of these two children, the, a little boy and a little girl, and they decide to make a trade for one gives its sweets, one gives its marbles. And the little boy holds back his biggest and favorite marble. And the little girl gives all her sweets to him. And at night, she sleeps wonderfully. And at night, he's tossing and turning, thinking if she held something back. And it's this idea that for us, it allows us to obviously feel good about what we've done, but more importantly, I think it gives us peace in our, in our decision-making as well. Yeah. We've defined our values, we have integrity, and there's no equivocation. There are certain things, of course, that are, are challenging and sometimes aren't exactly black and white, but when you have integrity, I think you're able to make good choices and good decisions. How then, I'm, I'm curious, because this, this always makes me curious when we, when we start these conversations, how then like personally do you deal with those gray areas where you're not sure you know what what is black and white here where where it becomes a challenge of how do i address this situation where i act in in not only the best best interest of me but the best interest of the people that are surrounding yeah. me how do you deal with those kinds of situations my default and i don't say this with any sense of false modesty i think there's other elements behind it and what what drives me to do this my default has always been to if there's any type of potential gray area go in the in the in the direction or favor of the other party it's just it makes me more comfortable um it's interesting in business i don't find it very difficult to me and, and sometimes that's as there are gray areas there but when it comes to anything that could make anyone feel that something is not on the up and up, I'll go in the other direction. And I'm in the real estate business and there have been plenty of examples where, you know, I won't take fees for something just because maybe something didn't work out. I want someone to feel good about it. I'd rather, you know, I'd rather take less and someone feel like everything was done correctly. And that's not to say that I don't need it or I don't need to be working, but I just feel better about it. In my personal life, I think the gray area, you know, where I've struggled for sure is that we use rationalization so much and that's the easiest, I guess, escape or, or, you know, way that we can justify in our mind certain decisions. I I don't like to think that I do that, but also, you know, I gave an example, I think because of technology and maybe I'm old enough to appreciate when I didn't have it, but (laughs) we used to, you know, you made an, I I'm, I'm meeting you for, for, for brunch or breakfast or dinner or something. I showed up. I didn't text you to say I'm running late. Uh, let me cancel or anything like that. That's a very small example, but I think that it, it actually had some, has some merit to it. You know, everything that we say we're going to do, we're going to do. Everything that we say we mean. 
And so for me, what I've tried to do is go kind of in the other direction, put myself in someone else's shoes. Um, much of that is probably driven by this journey of trying to find self-compassion. So I think that maybe there was always an overcompensation in some ways, mm -hmm. but for me, that's what I've, that's what I've tried to do the, to the best I could. Sounds a lot like empathy. <laughs> you know, it sounds, yeah. it sounds a lot like, you, you know, just the ability and that's like, that would, that would have been my answer, right? Like I, I look at that same question and I, and I think, you know, if, if it's a gray area, I try to understand, right. And right. I, I define empathy as listening to understand. It's one of my values, right. Um, it's, it's this understanding that I have no understanding completely of what's happening clearly, yeah. right. If this is gray, I don't understand it. Um, yeah. And so I try to clarify as much as I can until I'm not going to get any more clarification. I have to make a decision, right. obviously. Um, and ultimately, the the willingness to live with that decision that is made, you know, that's that's the that's the hard part, right? You know, I certainly oh, come absolutely. from a, I come up, I'm I come from a place of war, right? Like a lot of my I've been in the military for 14 years, and so the the decisions you make in war, you don't have any other choice but to, you know, make the decision and move on. Yeah. Um, and I've I watched, have, yeah. I've, oh, excuse me, uh, um, give me one second. Um, I, I've watched a lot of guys make those decisions and, you know, going back to your idea of rationalization, they don't have an idea of how to rationalize that. They don't have the mm -hmm. ability to make that logical. Um, and I find that is, is a, re a really difficult kind of gray area to step back from is that, initiation of things like violence, things like war, things like trauma, um, being able to step back from the logical aspect or the rationalization aspect of, of thinking through these things and making those decisions and understanding what happens in those gray areas of, of life um, are profoundly difficult. Is that lack or inability to rationalize driven by just the mental conditioning based on what you're what you're there to do that's a good question and i think the answer is undoubtedly yes but i think there's always a lot more to it than that mm -hmm. right you know i think i think when you join the military uh i'm not saying that people are fucked up but a lot of people join the military with this um misunderstanding of what it is or what you do um or just a misconception of how it is, uh, how it's good for you or not. Right. I, okay. I think, I think, you know, and, and I'm going to speak from my experience of, I, I joined the military to, to end my life. Right. That was, that was my story of, of 14 years ago. I was in a, I was in a, an emotional and mental place of, I didn't want to live anymore, but I wouldn't do it myself. Um, and so, I joined the military and tried to volunteer for every deployment I could. And that emotional, you know, that was, that was rational to me. Right. I, I, I think of rationality as everything, uh, every feeling you've ever felt in your life is rational is it makes sense. Right. You do it, you know, it's cause and effect where logic is certainly not that logic is putting the pieces together and looking at different perspectives to determine whether it fits or not. Um, and so back then it was logical or not logical, it was rational, 
right? It just made sense to me because yeah. I didn't, I wasn't going to do it. So let's, let's join an organization that would help me with that, that, that aspect and also do it in an honorable way. Now, I certainly don't feel that anymore, but there was so much compounding issues all around me that were, you know, the army was teaching me to suffer in silence. I was taught to suffer in silence before that by, by um, a man in my life that would, that would beat me and tell me not to feel right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I was taught that myself that I shouldn't feel right. I should suppress my feelings. I shouldn't talk about these things. Um, and in so many ways, war is as simple as it is, it is remarkably complicated mm. because you don't just stay in war. If you stayed in war, it's simple. You get it right. It, there's, there's, there's not much black and white, like you kill or be killed. But the, the complex part is that we come home, we come back to this country, right. Or any country or any place where there's a whole lot of people that don't understand what you've been through organizations that don't understand what you've been through culture that doesn't understand what you've been through and then you have to fit in and there is no other choice right that's where the complexity kind of begins is that we are we are shown to be you know we're shown in many capacities that we're a burden as veterans of of right. war um and that's a reality that's you know, like you look at veterans and how they talk about themselves you know, whether they're fully healthy or uh, abundantly mentally incapacitated, right? You, you see the same trends, right? They feel, we feel like we're burdens on, on society. And in many cases, it's not wrong, right? Like we've, we went overseas to do something, whether it was righteous or not, doesn't matter. We did it. We did it under the, under the, the needs of the army, the needs of the military, the needs of the country, the country sent us and we came back and now we have this burden of trauma, this burden of what war did to us and showed us and revealed to us and gave us this perspective. And returning with that perspective does not fit kindly into society and culture and family and friendship and re relationship. And it's, again, it's so complicated, right? We could sit here and talk about it for years and really, really not know how to, how to really return safely, you know? And I imagine that, I mean, I, I know that unless you've been there, you don't know, you can't possibly. And that's the contradiction I imagine in our society, right? Yeah. Here we celebrate, but at the same time you come back and you're a weight, you're a rain, you're a burden. Mm -hmm right or right or wrong and it's and it's and it's just the reality as you said so much of what you said struck me one of the more profound things i think i've heard was this idea when you say that you know i didn't want to live anymore i went to the military to take care of that and you know i go to sporting events from time to time and recently it seems there's been this real emphasis on bringing out a local member of the military comes on the field or the rank or, or the, the court, everyone stands up and I'm always watching them and they're waving and everyone seems to genuinely be supporting them. And then of course the applause stops and they go back to the game. And I think about that individual and it's a, it's a man or a woman. And I'm wondering now they go back to the reality that 30 seconds is over and what's their, what's their reality? 
And of course, we, many people do give it some thought, but most don't any more thought than just that moment of, all right, get out of your seat and give, give applause to those who have served and protected us and made us safe. But no real appreciation, deeper appreciation for then what's that person's reality now. Like you said, how does one fit back in after, after coming through there? 30, 30 seconds of applause doesn't bring a man it's nothing. home. Yeah, it's you very know, nice, it's... but it means nothing. I, I can't imagine. And every time I see that, I think about that because I'm watching them and they're waving and I'm like, what's, what's behind that wave? What's, what's, what's really going on there? Because they're leaving the game now or later and they still have to live their life, try to live their life probably. Yeah. It's a, you know, it's, it's a, it's a remarkably difficult uh, situation. Right. Because, you know, and I go back to what you said of, you know, if you, if you weren't there, you would, you really don't understand. And I've heard that so much. I bet I felt that so much, mm -hmm. but I also, I also have come to a point where, you know, I, I help people. I, I sit with people every day and I am a mental health coach. And so I sit with people and I listen to some of the hardest things people can go through. And I'm the first person they tell things to, right. Those, those deep intrinsic, intrinsically difficult thoughts. Um, and I've since come to despise that idea of if you weren't there, you wouldn't understand because I, although I don't understand fully, I do understand because I have the capacity to sit with someone and just listen to them. Right. And I, I really, I really capture that with the, with my understanding of empathy of listening to understand, right. Mm -hmm. Is that I'm not trying to, you know, uh, tell them how to feel or ask them how to feel or you know, force them to think my way. What I'm doing is trying to listen to them. And I think society, culture, family, people, anyone has the capacity to understand what I've been through, what veterans have been through, what people who've been through sexual assault have been through, what you've been through, but they need the capacity to, to listen, right? They yeah. need the capacity to, you know, have a genuine curiosity of how does your perspective work? How does it fit into your history, your story, your narrative? Um, and, and tell me how, when I share my perspective, how does it, how does it build friction or how does it help you or how does it function in an interaction with you? Right. You know, we, we don't have those conversations very often. And I, yeah. I certainly think just, from the veteran perspective, that's why it's been so hard for veterans to come home is that we don't have these conversations of saying, but from both sides, right? I'm not saying veterans are perfect, right? Because I know I haven't been, but the conversation of tell me about what has happened and I will never judge you. I just want to hear you share yeah. You know. That's that's so key because it reminds me of this idea that I've been speaking a lot about this idea, how when we let go of judgments and use, I think, what we developed from childhood, which is a sense of imagination, we all have that ability. Yeah. But I think letting go of judgments is what helps us at least get to a closer, I guess, an easier path of that empathy, which what you're talking about, and that compassion-driven kindness. The other piece to it that you said that I agree with completely, and I see it so much in the business world, and I had a call about it the other day, is this idea of 
there's a difference between listening and hearing. And so much I'm in meetings where someone could be speaking and the next person, they are just chomping at the bit and you could tell that they are just preparing their next response, not really hearing what you said or listening to what's been said. And that comes from humility, I believe, but also that sense of letting go of our judgments and really trying to, you're right, I can't truly understand. However, I can try to listen to you and really hear and use my sense of imagination in many ways, but if nothing else, let go of my judgments. Yeah. And I think that's so important. Yeah. And what I, what I love about this is like the conversation that we're having that, that makes it, I think it, what makes it easy for us to have a conversation simply is just that we, we take those little nuances of conversation and we define them, right? Like, you know, in, in this conversation, I've defined empathy for you and you've shared it back with me of your idea of empathy and, you've you've taken that little interaction of hearing what i actually said to you and and you repeated it back for me with an understanding of your perspective and shared that that piece for people right like i think that's that's a profoundly like one you're actioning your own you know values there you're actioning what you think is decent and right and you're also doing it in regard and respect for my own thoughts, right? Like that's, that's it. Like that's what we're talking about here specifically. And when more people can do that, even in the hard situation, that's the, that's the interesting part. This is an easy conversation because we're not emotionally motivated to be right. Right. Or, you know, be, you know, win the, win the argument or anything like that. We're, we have absolute respect for each other. Right. And so we want to, we want to make sure that we're both having a good time. This is not a, yeah. you know, we, we don't want this to be a disrespectful podcast. Right. And so we're trying to take care of each other and uh, agree with each other, but yet challenge each other. You're um, exactly right. And you said something too, that I think a lot of people don't, they don't ask questions and that comes from curiosity, right. but genuine curiosity, a place of care. And I think that, you know, this idea of cultivating awe in many ways can be really, really helpful and impactful there. But it comes from as exactly as you're saying, listening to nuances of what people are saying, repeating back so it's clear, redefining in many ways. Mm-hmm. It's very healthy, but I think it's, you know, so much is said, and as you know, these there's so many cliches. And one of them that I think has become too much cliche is going deep or being vulnerable. And those things are great, but just not for their own sake. And I think that there has to be some depth behind it and some genuine respect is actually exactly as you're saying, and some genuine care and interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Fundamental stuff, right? Fundamental stuff. <laughs> yeah. I, I love, I love when, you know, I, I connect with a lot of people on these, on these podcasts and I, I, I live within kind of two worlds. Well, I live in a lot of different worlds, but the, the, the spectrum that I kind of live in with this podcast specifically is that on my podcast, I talk about, I talk to people that have kind of stepped into this journey and not necessarily completed it because I don't think you can, um, but have very much swayed to the, the side of that spectrum where they yeah. feel remarkably comfortable with themselves. Mm-hmm. Whereas in my work, I work with people who are in remarkable discomfort with themselves. They don't know how to connect with them, themselves, their bodies, their minds, their personalities, the, you know, a a lot of different issues in a lot of different ways. Um, And not to say that I know exactly what 
everyone's problem is or, or everyone's issue or obstacle, but it is really interesting to hear both sides of the spectrum to see where people, how people define these things, how people attack themselves or attack these things differently. Um, and I, I, I always just find it really interesting to have conversations with, with people like yourself where, you know, I get to learn so much about Likewise. Uh, uh, just about everything. You know, I, I get to learn from my clients. I get to learn from you. Um, and, and not to say that either one is any better. It's just, I get to learn different things from different people. And I think this right here, this is the selfish side of things. Like the right. podcast is my selfish selfishness coming out. Cause I love talking to people. Um, the work is selfless, even though, you know, I'm, I am getting paid, but it is a selfless thing because it is remarkably hard, right? It's exhausting. It takes a lot out of me. Um, you know, I don't, I actually cut back a day because, you know, I, I do it four days a week instead of five, because it's exhausting. It's tiring, yeah. right? You can only do so much of it before you have to say, this is actually affecting me. This is bringing me down in a place where I shouldn't be. Right. And so, you know, it's, it's always interesting to kind of look at that, that dynamic of how to work with people, how to help people. Can you help people? Right. Like that's the, it's always been the question for me is it's a, it's a hard thing, you know? And so much of that and that last point that you're talking about this idea of, can we help people? Sometimes the acknowledgement or acceptance that we can't, but we can listen. Yeah. We can, we can, we can talk to people and we can do our best, but sometimes it's not going to be good enough. And that's okay too. Mm -hmm. You know, this idea of acceptance, which I talk about, and I came to that kind of last in, 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 in my book where I thought about this idea of tolerance and it felt like it connotated more of like putting up with something. I tolerate this, but acceptance, I feel like had more to do with coming to terms with in many ways and living more in reality, actually more than anything else, accepting the way that things are rather than regretting how they're not. And the reason why I think that flexibility, and you probably see this so much in your work, I know how successful you are in, in your program, but in your private practice, I imagine even more so. And I mean that as a compliment because this idea of flexibility is an understanding that we are going to have a lot of competing emotions, a lot of things that we like, a lot of things that we don't like in our head, but we have this flex and ability to stretch and bend our minds and carry in many ways, competing feelings and emotions and thoughts. We don't want them necessarily accepting is often the things, you know, accepting things that we don't want. Not it's easy to accept things that we do want, but accepting things that happen in our lives. And a lot of things happen that we don't want to happen, but we have to accept the truth. And I think that the reality of it is a sign of, or at least understanding the reality and recognize it is a sign of maturity. It's a sense of being practical and almost, a, 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 almost being just more sensible. Yep. It's more, it's a, it's a logical report, you know, response rather than a rational one or in, That's you know, right. in my definition. Um, I, I, I talked about the very same thing in my, in my book, you know, I talked about this, this, conceptualization of optimism versus pessimism versus realism. And, and, you know, that dynamic, that Trinity of perspectives in in its own regard of, you know, you can be pessimistic, you can be optimistic, but the reality is quite simple. 
yeah. what what really happened happened and you can look at it from a pessimistic point of view or an optimistic point of view i like optimistic realism right yes. you know i like to be hopeful for what can be um but i also remind myself that the reality is very present and i look at human beings in this in this way because human beings have the capacity for both bad and good. They have good and evil within them. They have the ability at any point to go from a respected human being to being a savage, right? An yeah. a absolute mindless killer, right? This, this can't happen. It has happened. Um, and we have to have awareness that that exists, right? You know, that's, that's one of the, the hard parts about this idealism, I think that comes out of, I think recent, recent history where we think we can actually build these utopias of human interaction where no one's going to offend anybody or anything like this. And we, right. we don't need freedom of speech. We need to, you know, lock down that you can't say these specific words, you know, and it, it becomes a really, it becomes a really difficult conversation because freedom of speech is, is a really interesting topic to, to dig into and understand and recognize that it's, it's important to give everyone their own sense of, I have a voice, right? And, and when you start to think that these bad people or these people are bad, right? Mm -hmm. Like either one um, should not have a voice. When you take a voice away from people, that's usually when things get really bad. Right. And it's, and, it's, it's important. Yeah. Excuse me. Go ahead. Well, because, because realistically those people that ha like get their voice taken away when you're not heard, things go wrong. And more often than not, when you have a conversation with a person that has an unclear perspective or a perspective that could be remarkably evil, one, you either learn that this person is remarkably evil or you change this person's mind in a way that gives clarity for them of like, wow, this was bad, right? You look at people who've lived in cults, like this is have a conversation and you start to realize that people can change their mind, but it's how you actually approach the conversation that does the, does the work right. for you. You're right. And it's interesting. I think back to when I was much younger and studying this idea of freedom of speech it, it and not just because I was younger, but I think even at the time, it was a much very, it was a much simpler ideal. It was yeah. this idea of that this is my right, period, full stop. And now it's amazing. It has become more nuanced in a way. And it has more to do with the voice, exactly as you're saying. I think when we talk about speech, that's what we're saying anyway, voice, whether it's written or, or verbal. Yeah. But I, it's, it's amazing how, and I was asked about how technology has changed some of the fundamentals that I talk about. And, you know, as again, I mentioned, I, I mean, I, I went to school without cell phones and emails and in many ways it was such a simpler time. And this yeah. isn't to kind of feel like, all right, you know, I, I'm, I'm getting old and, you know, not able to handle this. There's so many benefits of technology, but at the same time, um, going back to, a, um, you know, a point in time where we can just be a little bit more rather than be on our devices and our phones um, I talk a lot about being versus doing, and I think that has a lot to do with it as well. I went to a retreat not too long ago, and we had to give in our phones, and it was going to be for a week. 
And I remember I went running up there to give them my phone. Some people were <laughs> clutching them, you know, yeah. couldn't even get back. Now, when I got it back a week later, it took me a couple hours before I even turned it on. I yeah. didn't want to. Yeah. And so that point of disconnecting away in many, in many ways, it was this sort of freedom that I felt and even a recognition is I'm okay. And in many ways I'm better. Yeah. I, you know, I've, I've been an influencer for the past two years. I, I can, I can fairly say I've been that person for a while because I've, I've, I've grown on TikTok to a point of almost reaching 600,000 followers. Mm. And it's, it has been a learning experience because before that, you know, I grew up without technology up until about probably 14, right? Then that's when I got the Nokia brick, you know, like right. I, could, I could build a house out of a million of those. Um, but even that wasn't, you know, I didn't really have a strong connection with that. The most I did on it was play snake or make calls. Mm -hmm. That's about it. I didn't, I didn't like texting because you had to do the T nine stuff. That's right. Um, what a, what a tragedy that was to start off your texting career with. Right. Um, so I, you know, I kind of grew up with that, that sense as well of like, I really don't like technology all that much, but when I started becoming an influencer, it, 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 I realized how important technology can be it, as, as disconnecting as it can be for some, it is actually remarkably connecting for the people that don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. right? That's why I assume, right. For a lot of different, you know, kind of minuscule cultures or big cultures, it doesn't matter. You know, that's why on TikTok you start to see the, the response that you see in terms of sexual assault, you see um, trauma coming out, abuse coming out, um, and people having these conversations like they've never had before, the, like the idea of narcissism, right? You know, these ideas have blown up in the technological realm because for the first time in human history, I would say it's really gotten a voice um, or there's a platform or there's a place for these these words to actually be spoken. Now, is all of it going in the right direction? No, but that's what, that's what having a voice does is that that's right. Everyone speaks until we can kind of funnel it into understanding. Right. And I think that's mm -hmm. it. That's what technology is really good at is it, it takes all of that and funnels it into here's the best ideas and everyone outside of it is relatively cuckoo. We'll see, <laughs> you know, like, right. um, right. but but in my own journey with, with being a TikTok influencer, I went from being kind of obsessed with it and addicted to it, certainly, to in the last year, I just don't, I don't care to, to check it that much, especially in the last couple of weeks. I've actually, and this is, you know, this is in April. This won't come out for a couple of months now because I'm, I'm banking some episodes. But um, I, I've actually taken a setback from posting a lot you know, and, and checking comments and checking messages and stuff. And I've, I've done a lot more of self-reflection of you don't need to, right? I know there's, there's people suffering in the world and they're looking to you for help, but you can't help everybody unless you focus on yourself and being you, right? Like this, this discussion about being, um, you know, I, I've, I've stopped doing so much for people and I've started being there for myself a little bit more. Um, and, I've had a lot more of these conversations, so a little bit more selfishness in terms of the podcast, but it's, it's a really interesting kind of 
journey to step into the influencer side of things and recognize within yourself what that really means for you and, and especially freedom of speech. It's interesting. I'm, I'm wondering that idea when you said being there for yourself. And I haven't heard that a lot. And I think it's really profound. And I love it because it's framed in a very, you know, unselfish way. But at the same time, it has undertones of self-compassion. Yeah. And I'm well, wondering if when you're when you're working with someone who needs that, is that something that is harder to get across than maybe some other point that would seem, you know, considerably more difficult? Yeah, it, it, it is because, you know, oftentimes, oftentimes I ask my clients, what would I say to you? Right. Just to, just to one, because I'm, I'm a curious person. I'm always curious how people see me and what I would say, um, you know, and so recently I had a, a client of mine uh, tell me about, she had a really, really negative interaction with her parents. Um, and it was, it was, to the point of like, she felt completely downtrodden um, to the point where she was potentially suicidal. And I was like, what would I say to you? Right. And she was like, fuck them. <laughs> that was it. That was the only mm -hmm. response. Cause she, she obviously knows me because that's, that was the first thing I thought of like, fuck them. You know, like she tells me all of this, like that she doesn't deserve that, you know? And so what my point of asking that question isn't necessarily to understand, you know, for them to understand my perspective, but to, to capture a voice, right? Yeah. And, and the way I teach this, of this self-compassion, of the self-empathy, of taking any value that you have and teaching it to yourself is you, you ask them, what would someone say to you? What would your best friend say to you? What would you say to you? You know, what would you say to me? What would I say to you? And it doesn't matter whose voice it is. That's the remarkable part of humanity and, and the brain, right? Is that any voice is your voice, right? And if it's a negative voice, if you, if you hear your mom talking to you and it's a remarkably negative voice, all you have to do is say, what would, if it's me, if I counter that, what would Dylan say to your mom? And if Dylan would say, fuck you, well, then you use that voice, right? Mm -hmm. And until you use that voice over and over and over again, until it becomes your voice, you just do that, right? And that's really how I, how I try and teach I love that. people to be more self, whatever value you want to mm -hmm. impose upon yourself. It's such a powerful tool because, you know, the conversations that we have inside our heads, obviously, would we speak that way to anyone else? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, yes. someone asked me, you know, what, what was the last conversation I had in your head? I said, I wouldn't speak that way to anyone. It was completely unkind, and but I like the idea of understanding that the voice, who it comes from, doesn't matter. Yeah, that that message is is, is so much more important. Um, what's What's interesting about what you said is that at this point in my life, I talk to people how I think, right, and, and so the way I think to myself now, comparatively to fifteen years ago, completely different right? Like I would have conversations with them, how I have conversations with myself now. And that's, that's why I think it's so, that's why I have so much hope for people because I promise you, you know, and this isn't, this isn't necessarily for you, Josh, this is for the people out there that are, that are going to listen to this for, for 19 years of my life, I wanted to die. I wanted to kill myself. Right. 
but I just wouldn't because of the rule I made for myself. So I was hundred percent negative to myself. I was the most negative person to myself that ever lived, right? Nobody was more negative to me than me. And now I talk to people the way I talk to myself. I have conversations with people the way I talk to myself. And that is how I know it's possible for people to change yeah. the self-talk, the negative, uh, the negative mindsets. I know it's possible for people because I'm not that smart. I'm not that good. I'm, uh, you know, and maybe that's me kind of being self self-deprecating, but I don't think it's not, I don't think it is. I think there's a lot more people out there that are a lot smarter than me. I'm very smart, right? But I'm not brilliant. I'm not a genius. I'm just a, I'm just a guy having conversations and learning a whole lot from people like Josh and people like my clients, people like everybody else I've had on this podcast. And all it takes is you listening and taking those pieces of knowledge and trying to understand how to better deduce yourself and what should come out, what shouldn't come out, how to have conversations, how you shouldn't have conversations. That's it's that simple. It really is. And you know, I've been thinking about, I've, I've been saying to people recently as well, I'd say, I think I'm smart enough yeah. and, and, and that's sufficient. And for those that are listening, because you referenced, you know, this is for, for me, for, for you, but for everyone else listening, there is something you said in there that I hope everyone takes away. Because when you mention how you, when you speak to people, it's how you think that's called authenticity. Yeah. That's, that's plain and simple. That's what it is. And it's very hard to get to. We couch, we, we adjust, we, you know, reframe, we do what we think we, I'm certainly guilty of, I think so many times just wanting to be liked and wanting that approval and maybe adjusting things I say in there, but for you to speak, especially to people who need help, you, you speak to them the way that you're thinking that's authenticity. Yeah. yeah. And you've got, you can't judge yourself. Nope. You can't, you, you can't have room for that right? You can't hold yourself accountable. And I think there's a difference. I love kind of how Brene Brown goes about it of what is shame, right? Because that's really what, what ultimately comes from judgment, right? You know, shame is not the idea of uh, looking at you, Josh, and you and saying, Josh, you said something there that really kind of bothered me, right? That's, that's holding Josh accountable to understanding, right? Mm -hmm. You know, if, if he, didn't know that it bothered me to say something. I can, I can ask him that like, Hey, you know, you said something that bothered me. I just want to point that out. Um, it bothers me. Uh, would you mind not doing it? That's holding him accountable right mm -hmm. now. Does he have to do it? No, he doesn't. That's his freedom of speech. Right. But then I don't have to stay friends with you. Right. Like I don't have right. to talk to you again if I don't want to. Now, obviously family becomes really complicated when you do that but it's still out there. It's still an option, you know? And the idea of shame is looking at Josh and saying, Josh, you're the worst human being out there. I don't know how you could think of yourself as a good person. You know, your book is not a valuable piece of literature at all. And you should be ashamed of yourself for, for saying any of the things that you've said on this podcast. That's shameful. Mm -hmm. Right. And certainly untrue, just so you know. Right. Um, there's a difference, right? Where the first one was respectful, right? I have regard for Josh as a human being. And I say, I just want you to know this so that we can better our relationship versus the second one was 
I think you had malicious intent and you should be ashamed of yourself. And I don't want to have any, anything to do with you. Right. Right. That's, that's, that's the difference, you know, and we can, the second one's very judgmental. The right. first one is not the first one is holding someone accountable, right? It's not judging his intent. I didn't, I don't know if he knows or not, right? I'm just sharing my understanding. Mm-hmm. This doesn't feel good. And if he does it again, we have the conversation, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to hold you accountable again. We need to talk about this because clearly it's happened twice. Right. And that distinction being judgment. You're absolutely right. Yeah. And you know, when I think about judgment, I wonder how you handle this as well. Cause I've been asked a little bit now, as I've been speaking about the book and, you know, there are those who this, this type of conversation doesn't come easily to, mm-hmm. and in many ways they they're uncomfortable with it. Um, they may reject it. They may say, I, I, I don't understand it. I don't know how to communicate this way. I, and I'm wondering, you know, I, I hate to, I like to, I guess, make people feel led rather than pushed. Mm-hmm. But I'm wondering how you deal with people because you have a, a, a very wide audience that maybe comes to it from all different perspectives and may say, I don't really, I don't want to talk about this kind of thing. I'm uncomfortable here. And maybe those that come to you in practice are very different. They, they want to talk about it. And maybe some of them actually have a hard time opening up, but that's a different story. But how about those that generally that maybe listen to your program and say, this type of discussion just doesn't come easy to me. It's, how do you lead them to where it comes a little easier? Well, I, I address the, the elephant in the room. It's, it's not going to be easy. It's right? not going to be easy. You know, it's, it can't be easy, right? <laughs> like, this is why you're struggling with it. Right. You know, and, and so the reality is, is that I don't necessarily try to make it easier I tried to make them or not necessarily, not necessarily make them, but help them learn how to approach the conversation from Mm. a realistic mindset of this is going to be hard. And so I dis, I kind of disenfranchised the shame of the feeling, right? Because so many people have been, it's been hammered into their heads that you can't cry. You can't feel you can't allow yourself to be weak, right? Like that stuff's been hammered into our heads for, you know, a couple centuries now, because if you start crying, if you start becoming weak, well, then you can't be a good worker. You can't be a good husband. You can't be a good wife. You can't be a good son. You can't be a good daughter, whatever. It's, it's replicated on so many different places. And so I approach that conversation and I remind people it's a lot harder for someone that is tough, someone that is hard to become soft again, than it is for someone to become, you know, go from soft to hard. Right. Right. You know, and so what you really want to do is you want to develop the path from toughness down mm-hmm. because that's where it really matters. Right. You know, you lose a parent and trust me, you're going to go from soft to hard real quick. Right. right. But how are you going to come back to a relationship? You know, I haven't talked about this, but I've been thinking about it for a long time. Um, nobody wants a relationship with someone that is callous, right? hundred percent of the time, right? Nobody. I I don't care if you're the hardest man out there. You do not want to look at your wife and be like, that woman is absolutely callous. I do. Why would I want to have a relationship with her? Right. Same in the same with men of like women look at men and be like, well, he's a really, he's a really tough guy. 
I want to have a relationship with how hard he is, right? Nobody wants that. Nope. Everybody needs to have a soft side where you can say, I feel things, right? Now, is there's, there's a balance. You don't want too much of that either, but you certainly don't want to be this tough, calloused individual that doesn't ever feel. And so you That's have right. to have a relationship with the emotion you have to like. And so in many ways, to answer your question, I help them have a relationship with their emotions before I ever want to hear the story. Mm. That's, 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 a, it's, it's that simple to me. Yep. That, that makes a lot of sense. And you're right. When you see someone who is harder, tougher, has that exterior and you see that glimpse because we all have it somewhere in us, even the hardest, when you see it reveal itself, it's, it, it's almost like the sun peeking out. Yeah. And I, I find that, you know, I, I spoke um, just this week to a, a, a company and I was going through my book with all of their managers. And this was a, a business that's in the, in the trucking industry. And it was, it was some tough stuff. And at the same time afterwards, little by little, people started opening up, asking questions, sharing a little bit more. And it was exactly as said, and perhaps inadvertently, I did it understanding, talk about more of the emotions first. And what the feedback I got afterwards was this was so needed because it's almost taboo to discuss about this specific particularly in corporate life for sure, but even in an industry like this, where it's saying, we, we, we're not going to talk about our feelings, you know, that, that's it. <laughs> yeah. It's it, it, people think it's a worthless conversation and it's not right. right? Like I'm, I'm military. I'm st I still actively serve. Right. One of the mm -hmm. first things I talk to my, my guys with the first time I have a conversation with them is, you know, if you ever have issues, I really mean it. And, and I have to approach this conversation really carefully because everybody says it, right? If you have problems, come to me, right? But no, I, I disarm the whole conversation. I'm like, if you have an issue, the only way that I can help you is if you bring it to me. And that means that you are going to have to bring me, you know, you're going to have to come to me in your hardest moment and ask for something that you do not want to ask for. You're going to mm -hmm. have to ask for help. Right. Yeah. And so whatever you think it is that, that you need, you need to remind yourself that I am 100% here for you first, the army second. Right. And does the army like that? No, it does not. Right. Like, but the army runs off of human, human beings. And so in, in the long run, the army likes what I really do. It just doesn't understand how I do it. Right. I'm a little bit different leader than most, most military leaders, right? I try to focus on trying to keep that person happy for as long as possible. And, and what that means is that they might have to feel really hard for a little bit. They might have to feel and emotionally uh, struggle with what's happening right then. And the army doesn't like that. You know, the, the country doesn't like that because guess what? We have a political cycle. We have a, you know, we have the military of, you know, Okay, reviews come every year, all of that stuff. Like we, we always have a timeline mm -hmm. and it's a remarkably short timeline. And I don't like that because people grow over time. They don't grow in a year. They grow over years, decades. Mm -hmm. And so I always look at the people, you know, under my command of, I have to dis, I have to disarm the conversation where 
they wouldn't normally bring things to me. If I say, you know, come to me with your problems. It's, Mm -hmm. I I need you to come to me with your problems because I want to make sure that you're okay. There's a difference in what you're saying there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, they, they recognize the genuine desire for my, my help, my guidance, Mm -hmm. my support. Right. And it's, it's the, it's, it's the balance of, do you tell your superiors or do you trust, you know, do you hold the trust of your, your subordinates when they say, I have this issue, but I don't want it to go up the chain. Right. They hold that trust because you're coming with no agenda. Yeah. I have one specific reason here and it's to help you period. That's it. Everybody, everybody wants, thinks they have to have an agenda. You don't, Mm -hmm. your, your agenda could literally be want to help you want to help you. That's it. That's my agenda. And then you listen and then you, then you have that conversation and you say, okay, now here are, here are your options. Here are the consequences of those options. What do you want to do? Or do you Mm -hmm. want to hear what my recommendations are? It's, it's that simple. You know, you mentioned before the idea of losing parents and I'm fortunate to have mine uh, right now. And, but a few weeks ago I lost a friend. It was a a contemporary, someone I had a 30 year friendship with probably more than anyone else that I've ever known embodied the qualities that I outline in my book. Perhaps there was something to that. Uh, he turned 47 a few weeks ago, two weeks later, had a heart attack and that was it. And I went down to the wake and I gathered with some, and this is a friend from high school, very close during that time. And seeing everyone took me back to a place and a time that I just was not prepared to go to. And the triggers that came from it really were very unexpected. Certainly it was the emotion of the occasion, but it was so overwhelming to me that I went to the wake and the next day I woke up after sleeping maybe 20 minutes that night. And I messaged one friend that was there. It was basically the three of us as, as, as buddies that hung out all during that high school. And I said, I have to go home. I'm not going to be able to come to the service today. And I felt such guilt and like you were talking about shame, right? And I really struggled with that feeling of, listen, the right thing to do is to go, you pay your respects and you're here and, and you go and do it. And the other side of me was saying, I don't want to, I, I, I don't want to, and can I? Yes, but do I want to? No. And in many ways, this idea of you know protecting our mental health these days is another phrase that has become, I think, in misused, I don't want to say overused, but misused. Mm -hmm. And I struggled with the idea of a few of those themes, triggers, um, doing what we think we have to do versus what we want to do, trying to justify and rationalize. And I, I, I don't know what type of, I imagine you've probably had too much experience relative to this, this theme and this subject. Yeah. But how have you been able to at least develop a sense of comfort to staying within where we're, where we're most comfortable when it comes to these kind of matters, juggling the idea of what's right versus what we really feel that we want to do. It's a great question. And a, and a very personal question, which I, I thank you for bringing it here. Um, and I'll, I'll start with a story because uh, personally, I, I lost a soldier last year 
Um, and it's, uh, you know, I struggle with the idea of paying respects, right? I don't, I don't know if I like the terminology um, because it, it does, it does feel shameful when you don't, right? When you're, when you're supposed to go to the service and you're, you're supposed to pay your respects to this person. And I don't think that's, I don't, I don't know if I agree with how we grieve, right? Because I don't think grieving is a, is an ending process, right? I think grieving is a living process. It's a, however you want to do it process, right? Does everybody need to gather in this place of, of remarkable sadness and sorrowful kind of feelings uh, and do it that way? I just don't agree with that, right? You can, if that's what, if that's what helps you, you should, right? If it's not, don't do it your own way, right? If you want to dedicate your book to, to that person, do it that way, right? If you want to visit him alone, do it that way, right? For me, I wear this bracelet, you know, um, and the people not seeing the video can't see it, but this, so there's more than one name on this. There's actually five names on it. Four of them, you know, four of them are, are, are stamped in the other one. Uh, my soldier is scratched in on the inside because he, he died after these were made. Um, you know, four of these guys, you know, ended their life by suicide. And then my soldier was an accident, but I put his name with the rest of him because he deserves as much respect as all the rest. And so I look at that as, you know, as you can undoubtedly hear the trembling in my voice, the comfort is the uncomfortable. The, the emotion is the comfortable, right? Where people feel uncomfortable, this right here, I don't, I refuse to. I refuse to look at my own version of grieving as uncomfortable for me as shameful, right? And so I've, I've broken down on my podcast many times, sharing my thoughts, sharing my, my feelings, sharing my grief in, in many regards, because it is a part of life. It's a piece of life and it needs to be a piece of our lives, right? When we sit here and try to minimize it by saying, you can only grieve at a funeral, right? You can only pay your respects at a funeral you're minimizing that entire person's life. And so I carry, I, I don't carry their guilt. I don't carry the shame. I don't carry the regret. I carry the, the life of these people. Um, and I talk about them, right? I tell their stories. I remind people how important it is to have these conversations. Because when you do, you connect with people, you know, you asked me a very unknowingly, a very personal question. When here we are, here we are having this connection. Here we are talking about something that very few people talk about and it's necessary. And so it's comfortable for me, yeah. <laughs> if that makes sense, it may not look like it, but it is. Yeah. I thank you for that. And you know, it's, it's not a, because it's raw for me with this loss. It wasn't expect something I expected to share just felt the, 
comfort to share. But something you said in there that I think that gives me a lot of comfort is this idea of how, again, going back to almost labels and calling things certain things, by doing that, we reduce it to so much less than it is. Yeah. Like you were saying, we are minimizing a life by saying that we can only pay respects this certain way through this tradition. When what matters most is keeping them alive, maybe through our stories, through talking about it, through feeling it, through yeah. honoring them in other ways. That's what's lasting. Yep. And the, you know, the last few weeks since, since that funeral has been a challenge for me because I don't think that I came to terms with that very idea. I think that I had a hard time still getting over the fact that I did something wrong. When I remember that morning very clearly, I was getting dressed and I just, I didn't want to do it. I, and could I do it? Yes. I felt that I couldn't do it, but I didn't really want to. It's hard, you know, nothing about grief is, is easy. And I, it, it always becomes more complicated when you add other people. Right. Yeah. And this, this social aspect of, you know, you should be grieving differently than, mm -hmm. than how, how you are. Um, and I, I disagree. You know, I, I, I look at you, Josh, and I say, grief however you need to, right? If you can't right. go to the funeral, don't, you know what, but do whatever you feel is right. Yeah. You know, but respect that person, respect that life. However, that is, however you do so. That's, that's what matters, right? Matters. Because when we, you know, I, 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 step, I stepped out onto this journey of sharing my experiences for a lot of different reasons, but one of the biggest one was to kind of carry my, to carry my father's legacy forward, right? Because my father didn't have a good life, didn't have a, I shouldn't say it was a good life, but I don't know a lot about my father's life. What I, did, what I do know is it was hard, right? Mm -hmm. Whether by choice or by accident or by circumstance, it doesn't matter. He went through some hard stuff, right? It was a painful life. It was a difficult life. And I only knew him, you know, and I didn't really know him because I was only six years old. Um, I only knew him at the end of it, which means I didn't get to see the the beautiful individual that he probably could have been had he had someone like myself, right? Or you, right? And so I respect his life by carrying forward these messages and this, these ideas that I bring out, these conversations that we have, you know, this authenticity that I know I have is because I don't want people to end up like my dad. I don't want people to end up like I ended, almost ended up in 2015 when I almost killed myself, right? I don't want people to walk through these difficult journeys to end them, right? And so I carry forward this, this life of his, you know, whether tragic or not, I respect him. I have love for him, even though he made a decision that was harmful to me in many ways. Um, and so I, I do the same, you know, I, 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 I don't go to his grave every year. I don't, I don't see him all the time, but I certainly respect him in my own way. Mm -hmm. I respect his life. I carry forward his, his message and I try to honor 
the best I can what I think would have been best for him. You know, I do that, I do that for myself as well. You know, I, I play this game of how would I want to be, you know, how would, how would I want me to take care of me? Right. Mm. Like I think forward of like, you know, if I had a friend, an imaginary friend that I could send back to six years old and say, take care of him. How would I do that? You know, and right. I, if I could do the same for my dad, I think through that, I think through how could I take care of my clients sometimes? And, you know, I, I try and play these kind of mind, these mindfulness games of how can I support everybody? How can I support me? How can I support them? How can I support my old self? Um, and in that, you know, you, you take those people that you have lost and you, you honor their lives, right? There's, there's four guys that commit suicide that are, their names are on my wrist and clearly they matter to me, right? Like I, I, I respect their names. I respect their lives. Um, and I do this work to help remind people that there is hope. There's, there's a sense of, uh, loving the future, even though you've lost, right. I try to do, I try to do it all. I try to grieve. I try to feel, I try to hope I try to love, you know, and I, I feel like I'm very successful at all of those things. And, and just because I cry doesn't mean I'm not hard, right? Like I'm still, you know, I'm still in the, the army national guard. I still do, still do that job. I can feel and turn around and do what I have to do. I mean, I'm infantry. Mm -hmm. I know what, I know what I got to do. I've been to Afghanistan twice. So it's not, I don't, I don't sit here and question just because I feel I'm not strong enough to do my job. I know exactly what I've got to do and yeah. feeling it empowers me to do it better. You know, it was a beautiful reflection on your father. I, I really appreciated that perspective. And as you talked a little bit more than about the work that you do in helping others, almost as a, re as a reflection of that, you had mentioned that you have reduced so much of your, your, your load, which is already probably overloaded just because the, the almost the drain yeah. is very real. And someone asked me the other day, you know, what do you, what do you do when you need to decompress or, or, or just unplug a little bit? And I think that that word even, I think is, is so <laughs> overused, but I remember at the outset of um, COVID and this is probably March of 2020 yeah. and I'm in the Northeast and it was cold and getting outside reconnected me to nature in just a completely different way than yep. ever before. I took on a whole nother meaning. And for me now it's, that's my air. I mean, literally that's my oxygen and that's how I can go. And I don't even want to necessarily, you know, talk to someone on the phone while I'm doing that. That's really my time. And I find such peace and comfort doing that. Do you find that you're, when you start to, you know, decompress in some way, it's outdoors somewhere. What's, what's funny about this. I go cold weather camping, you know, and, and what that looks like I'm in Wisconsin. Right. And so what that looks like is, so it was, it was 2020, right. This was right before COVID February of 2020. I went out with a really good friend of mine. He was my roommate, my first roommate in Afghanistan, my first deployment. Um, and we, we went out and built our shelter 
from scratch. Like we used one tarp and then we used a bunch of sticks to, to build it. We even built ice cubes uh, to, or a kind of an igloo side wall because we didn't have enough right. sticks. Uh, and it was, it ended up being negative 35 at night. And all we did was built our own, our, our own shelter, had our, our sleeping bags. Uh, we worked in negative 20 and we had taken off all our layers except for our, basically our t-shirts because we, we were working so much, uh, you know, the old way with, you know, chopping down old dead logs that, that were, were going to be good standing firewood, yeah. uh, you know, prepping, prepping logs for firewood. Like we were working so hard that negative 20 felt comfortable. Right. right. And, you know, we do that and we don't just cold weather camp, we camp all year round, but we like cold weather camping because it's that, it's that recognition that nature is always the, the greater enemy, right? You know, and, and not necessarily enemy, but it's the thing that needs to be respected more than humans, right? I think people have gotten this kind of backwards. If we look at this, the, the list of species on the planet and we're like, man is the greatest killer uh, among all of them. And I, I agree among species, mm -hmm. but nature will always will always tip the scales undefeated you know? uh, absolutely undefeated and when you learn when you learn to have respect for that when you step back into the realm of nature and really respect what it is and what it can do to you and and uh and also for you you start to i think reconnect with what it means to be a human being mm -hmm. you know? so i've i've been in the infantry for a long time and we don't get barracks, right? We don't, we don't get taken care of like, like the air force does, or, you know, like some of those, some of those other branches, we, you know, I go to drill and I sleep outside, right. You know, and I've, I still remember the many April drills I've been through where uh, it snowed on us. Right. And we wake up and, you know, we go to bed at one o'clock in the morning. So we had a four hour bus ride. And at four o'clock in the morning, we've got three inches of snow on us when there wasn't any snow before that, you know, like I, I remember those times that remind you that nature will always dominate. And that, that respect puts a lot of things in perspective for me. You know, I don't know, I don't know what it does for you, but I know that I look at the world around me, you know, I have a window right here and I'm looking out at nature and I'm saying, it's beautiful. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful, but deadly thing out yeah. there, you know, and, and that deadliness gives me that respect that, you know, it's not just beautiful, it is deadly. And it reminds me of the, the futility of man, you know, and the, mm. the remarkable, the remarkable arrogance we seem to have that we can calm nature or control nature or dominate right. nature. Um, we just can't. And so it puts me into this perspective of, yeah, humble it up, Dylan. That's you know? right. That, that's exactly it. And that respect leads to the appreciation, leads to, I think, the humility. In, in many ways, in between, there's the gratitude. And you mentioned this idea of things that are happening for us and to us. Yeah. And I love that distinction too. But it's that very thing, just as you, to me, I get grounded quickly. Yeah. I feel this small and it's great because it reduces the sense of my significance, but more shines a light on my insignificance. And that, that actually 
I find very, very helpful. And, and then in many ways, it relieves me of so much of the weight that I often carry because yeah. it, it takes away the need for it. Yeah. And so I, I completely in agreement. I had a feeling, I didn't know that uh, you were going to answer with camping and 35 below, but <laughs> in many ways, I'm not surprised. Yeah. It's just, that's just me. I, I love it. It was the it's first, great. it was the first real experience. Cause you know, obviously in, in the military, you don't have beards. So I didn't get to ever experience this before, but when I camped that, that weekend, um, is the first time I actually experienced frost, mm. uh, actually forming on my beard. Um, cause normally I'm, I'm relatively clean shaven at that point. It was right after deployment. I had an extended period of time where I could actually grow a beard. Yeah. And so I had like ice nodules all over, all over my, my mustache and my beard. And it was like, I, I was just, it was the coolest thing, you know, because my buddy's looking over at me and he's got them. I'm looking at him. It's like, bro, you got ice on your beard. This is so cool. Right. You know, and like, that's what I remember. That's what we were thinking about. You know, yeah. you're not thinking about the pain. You're not thinking yeah. about the struggle. You're not thinking about anything else. You're just looking over at your friend and thinking, bro, we've got ice on our beards. That's it. This is cool. Right. This is so cool. Like, you know, it's not that we were you know, we're not mountain men, we're not, you know, trappers or anything like we're not crazy into, you know, survival or anything like that. We're just reminding ourselves, mm -hmm. you know, I think that's what we, we do really well is that it's not an obsession necessarily, you know, it still kind of is, but it's not a, you know, we need to do this, you know, yeah. we, we live in both worlds. And I think you need to, you know, you need to be able to live whatever your, whatever spectrum you're looking at, you need to live in both worlds. You need to be selfish. You need to be selfless. You need to be in humanity. You need to be in nature. You need to be, uh, you need to understand good and you need to understand evil. You need to understand freedom of speech. You need to understand not having freedom of speech, you know? And I think you need to be in, in all capacities yeah. to remember how to build your own integrity and kind of circle all the way back. What is right and wrong? If you look at both perspectives, you're going to realize pretty quick, this is what's right. You know, that's why I, I, I always find it funny when we look at American politics and we think like it has to be Democrat or Republican, like someday that's going to change because people mm -hmm. are going to recognize that to be on the extremes doesn't, it, it, it disregards so much information. It disregards so much uh, individuality that we we forget that two truths can be, you know, true at the same time. That's right. You know, and, and, and we, we always think that we're right and we're not, you know, and nature reminds us every day, if you pay attention that we're very much wrong. It's those reminders. You're absolutely right. hundred percent. It's always funny, but well, Josh, I feel like we could, we could talk for a couple of days, you mm -hmm. know, but we should probably wrap this up for, uh, for our listeners here. So let me, let me end with the, the final question and, and we can we can call it a day. If there was one message you could leave the world, what would it be? The conversation was so great and not surprising. You came up with a great question to finish it. It's fascinating because I come and I love talking about my book, but I really don't. I like having meaningful, really impactful new friendships that are going to stay with me forever. And I think the message that I would leave 
almost ties back in exactly our, our last segment there. And that is a quote that I think about every day. And it is, we are like butterflies who flutter for a day and think it's forever. And that's by Carl Sagan. It's not mine, but it's that very idea of feeling that sense of humility, feeling that sense of fragility of life in many ways, also understanding that things are not to be taken for granted. And, you know, being mindful of our moments, our moments matter so much and our moments are right now. And I think that's so, so important. And that's something that probably I would impart to anyone listening. And I think we, uh, and we talked about all of that today. Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a beautiful, a beautiful segment to end on. And I, and I honestly thank you for the conversation today. It was a, is easily, you know, I've had so many, but I, I feel like there are some that, that I find very deep and meaningful even more than the rest. And I think this was one of them. So likewise, this stood out and this is going to stay with me and I'm grateful to you. Absolutely. Well, if you've listened to this point, thank you, Josh. Thank you again. Um, I, I appreciate both you and the audience having, having listened to this and I hope you, uh, hope you enjoy this. I hope you find meaning from this. Uh, and don't forget to catch us next time on the Dylan experience. And that's it. <laughs>